Yes, of course. Burl Bearer. <laughs> I've known a few writers who were rogues and vagabonds. And I'm Roger Moore. I didn't supply the microphone. All right. Produced by Magic Matt Allen, welcome to True Crime Uncensored, America's premier true crime podcast. I am the legendary Burl Bear. I'm a true crime author by profession and proclivity. And we have Mark Boyer, co-host and fact-checker supreme, who knows more about everything than anybody else. <clears throat> and I'm usually wrong. Yeah. And uh, I came across an interesting thing. Well, it was interesting to me. <laughs> There's a, uh, a new book or booklet out uh, those of you who uh, had a higher education uh, probably remember Cliff's Notes. And that's if you didn't read Tale of Two Cities, you, for some cheap amount of money, you could uh, get a, uh, a little booklet that told you the synopsis, the major ingredients, the real nitty-gritty. Yes. Of, uh, Cliff Notes, Shams Outlines. Shams Outlines? Shams Outlines. If you... Uh, if you were into science, yeah, they had an entire series of math and physics and chemistry. And this is the same sort of deal, cheat notes kind of, right? Right. And it was more, here's a whole bunch of examples and we'll explain what we did. All right. Because most uh, textbooks don't give you 35 or 40 examples. No, they so you can, look if they give you one. Yeah. <laughs> So that's what they did. Uh, that's what Sean's... Uh, Sean. Sean. How do you spell that? A-M. Sean. Um, yes, I have a whole plethora of those books. A plethora. A plethora. A plethora. Yes. Uh, um, so you didn't read A Tale of Two Titties? No, A Tale of Two Titties? No, that I lived. <laughs> <laughs> I, I enjoyed that book a lot. I bet you did. Uh, anyway, so I'm browsing uh, the internet and the outer net, and I come across essentially... Is the Cliff Notes version of one of my books. <laughs> now I know I have hit the pinnacle of my success. I actually used to be with Pinnacle True Crime, uh, published by Kensington, where you can buy the paperback version of my New York Times bestseller, Cliff Murder Notes in the Family. Of Murder in the Family. That's what I just said. It's not by, not by Cliff's Notes. It's by some other firm I'd never heard of, where I don't think English is their first language, which is why I'm bringing this to your attention today, is I went ahead and I got a sample of, of insights. <laughs> That's what it's called, insights, I believe, not incest. Insights uh, into Murder in the Family by Burl Bear. That's right, insights on Burl Bear's Murder in the Family. The title, however, is Summary of Burl Bear's Murder in the Family. They can't decide what to call it, and they don't pay me anything for this. But uh, let's let's dive right into some of the insights from my New York Times well, bestseller. Well, before you dive into the insights, yes. why don't you give us your thumbnail sketch of the story? Well, it's the same story. <laughs> and that is, well, I'll, I'll kind of give you a modified version of the insights here. On March 15, 1987, Paul and Cheryl Chapman's nightmare began. Their bedside telephone rang and they were woken, awakened by a concerned Mama Somerville of Gwenny's Restaurant in Anchorage, Alaska. Now they go over to the sister's apartment. Why? Because in real life, uh, the lady from the uh, restaurant says, Hey, uh, your sister didn't show up for work. And her car's in the parking lot in the same spot it was yesterday. Uh, I think something's wrong. So 
they, uh, Cheryl uh, and Paul get in their cars, get in their car, and drive like crazy over to the uh, apartment. And uh, things were really bad there. Uh, Paul goes in first, takes a look around, and sees what there is to be seen and tells his, his wife, don't go back, don't go look. Uh, what, they, what Paul saw, and this is not what they, they describe in the insights, the Newman's apartment was filled with blood. The children were all naked with the exception of their socks, which were near the bed. Uh, the kids had been stabbed multiple times. One of the little girls had her throat slit, and there was blood along the walls because whoever did it swung the child around like you play with a kid but hold on their arms and swing them around. Did that with them bleeding, and so it uh, put blood on all the walls. The mother had been strangled uh, with a pillowcase, and she's also very dead. Now... Show you how insightful this uh, summary is. It says, when the Chapmans arrived at the scene, they were sobbing and shaking. They told police they'd been called to the scene by Mama Somerville. Okay, that's fairly accurate. The killer stayed in the apartment for a long period of time, which indicated he knew the victims. He also enjoyed himself while doing this, which meant the person they were looking for was an extremely adversarial person. Now, the murders of Nancy and her two daughters were unlike anything in the history of Alaska. To a close, loving, extended family. Now, the next little section here in the insights, important insights into my book. It says that on March 13th, Paul had an important interview at Universal Motors between 8 and 8.30 that morning. And Nancy had dropped by to borrow the vacuum cleaner. He lent it to her. She cleaned his beard before going to work. If there's going to be a test on this book, I doubt that's going to be one of the important questions. With the vacuum cleaner? Yeah, but va- nothing. Uh, it said the Newman's routine included getting up early. Police determined that Nancy had cigarettes and cereal while her daughters watched television. That gives the impression that she ate both cigarettes and cereal, which she did not. She did smoke cigarettes, however. They also found a black pall around the restaurant. What is a black pall? B-A-L-L. Uh, <clears throat> I note that a pall is a, a darkening of the spirit or the surroundings. Right. So police found a black pall around the restaurant. Ooh, whoever, whoever did this summary should have talked to me first. Kirby Anthony was the nephew who had moved in with the Newmans. He told police that he and his girlfriend, Debbie Heck, couldn't get along out on the boat. What boat? And were no longer an item. He then moved back in with Nancy and her children. Woo! Man, oh man, Someone who wrote this didn't read the book. They talked to someone who knew someone who read the book. Who is Kirby Anthony, and how does he suddenly show up in this story? Well, the police figured Kirby was a suspect, as he was the only one with the key to the, the house. However, his account of the events was inconsistent, and he couldn't remember anything. When police interviewed him, he told them that he'd lived with the Newmans, that he'd borrowed a shirt from Jeff Mullen's brother Kirk the night before. The shirt had become stained with feces. I don't know, this makes no sense to me. I'll just tell the damn story. 
right. What I think the real crime here? Yeah. This person they're asking three dollars for the book. That's about uh, two dollars and ninety-five cents too much. <laughs> you know, um, um, Shams outlines. Pardon me. Yeah. Um, the other one. Uh, the one that's scientific. No, the one that wasn't scientific. The oh. book ones. Uh, Cliff Notes. Yeah. They start out at the beginning with a cast of characters that are in the book. To tell you who they who are. Who they are, how they relate. And then they list them in the order of importance, according to the person who wrote the Cliff Notes. Well, that's good. And they also list major themes that that character represents or uh, is involved in, so that when you read the outline, you have an idea who the people are. Yeah, well, this one just starts out talking about Jeff Mullins and his feces, his shirt, and his... I mean, they don't introduce the characters before they start just yakking about them. This is very peculiar. The Newmans were murdered on Friday the 13th, which was apparently significant for someone named J.S., a mental patient who had visions of human sacrifices and satanic cult murders. And she had her doctor call the police and say, one of the people here in the mental institution thinks there's going to be some cult murders on Friday the 13th. I, I think he got that wrong. My initials are MB. Oh, you were the... Probably MP for mental patient. Okay. Uh, okay. Uh, this is just so weird. I mean, if you've read my book and you know the story, and I'll, I'll tell you the rest of it in a minute, but I'm, I'm looking at this insights. They got things so pakakta here. It's, uh, that's a very literary expression. Uh, what, for mished? Yeah, for mished. And for blungent. <laughs> While the fingerprint experts and victimology team were working, investigators Reeder and Spanafora checked out Kirby Anthony's alibi for Saturday morning with Kirk Mullins and Deborah Dean. They did multiple loads of laundry to prove everything was as Anthony said it was, with the exception of Mullins saying Anthony didn't arrive at 9.30. What the hell? Oh. Let's get down to uh, the reality here. This Kirby Anthony guy, he's not a real piece of cake. He's in prison. They didn't have the, they don't have the uh, death penalty in Alaska. So uh, uh, he's still alive. He, he's the guy who did it. Kirby Anthony was born in 63. He was the youngest of five kids. Uh, his parents' marriage uh, was less than exemplary. It featured violence, injury, gunplay. Ooh. Yeah, his uh, mom was a bartender and waitress. His father uh, drove a truck. Now, when he was younger, he was charged with bombing a building and was sent to the youth service center. He got his GED there. And he uh, actually was quite a decent mechanic, a uh, mechanic certificate for completing vocational skills course. And he was, uh, you know, he was good at that, at least something. But uh, what the hell was going on here? Okay, Kirby Anthony... He's already a suspect in the murder of a 12-year-old girl in uh, Idaho, like Twin, Twin Falls area or something. His girlfriend, Debbie Heck, who was a, just a total sweetheart, uh, they go up to Alaska. Why do they go to Alaska? Kirby thinks it's a great idea, probably because he just murdered this 12-year-old girl and wants to get the hell out of the town. Debbie doesn't know anything about this. They argue all the time, but they stay together. But uh, Kirby's getting worse, and she's getting fed up. They get to Alaska. They stay with uh, Kirby's aunt and her, uh, her two little kids. And then they get a job on a fishing boat. Now, Debbie has told me the reality of this story. 
She thought this was a perfect opportunity to finally get the hell away from Kirby, who was getting weirder and weirder and more unpleasant and more physically abusive. She decides that as soon as they get on that fishing boat, she's going to hop into bed and have a hot, cold, medium, rare, whatever sex with the first mate. Yes, she's going to mate with the first mate who's the first mate she sees on the boat. And that plan worked. Now, here was, the, here was the plan. Not only does she get to have sex with the first mate, the first mate gets to have sex with her, but that really pisses Kirby off. What do you think? <laughs> yeah. Well, my girlfriend just couldn't wait to have sex with the first mate on the boat. But she knows that he's going to go crazy trying to get to her to hurt her. And being as that she's in the first mate's bunk, or bunk with, this is no bunk, uh, they're going to protect her and throw him off the boat. Wrong. Right. That's exactly what they do. They protect her because he's trying to get to her to kill her or whatever. And they said, we can't have a violent maniac like this on a boat. We could have a good-looking young girl that knows how to do the hokey pokey. <laughs> but we're going to kick this jerk off the boat. They do. Now, this is what he does. He's so upset about Debbie having sex with the first mate and him being kicked off the boat, he being kicked off the boat, then he goes back to Nancy Newman's uh, place and comes in and murders her and her two little kids. Because somebody else had sex without him. Yeah. And didn't even take Polaroids. <clears throat> well, that's, you know, that's rude. Yeah, so he murders his wife, and not his wife, his aunt and her two little kids. And then steals all the money out of Nancy's tip jar. Uh, so he's like prime suspect. They also had some other suspects. I mean, you can't just, although cops tend to do this, unfortunately, in homicide investigations, they'll decide who did it, whether they did or not, and refuse to look at anybody else. But uh, uh, the FBI was brought in on this case. And uh, this is significant because this is the first time in the history of the universe that an FBI profiler was uh, allowed to testify at a trial. Uh, Judson Ray was his name. Uh, and also, this was pre-DNA. I mean, DNA existed, but we hadn't discovered it yet or figured it out or anything. You couldn't do a DNA testing yet. They had what they called allotype testing. Well, that was your blood type. Yeah. Yeah. So they, they uh, and then they had to decide whether or not to allow allotype testing in the trial, whether it was a legitimate science, if it had been, you know, verified. And they decided it was, so they uh, went ahead and allowed the L-type testimony. But they uh, they had a few other suspects that they investigated. One guy figured they were going to pin it on him, and he ran away. Well, then they discovered that Kirby had killed somebody else up there also. Mm-hmm. A fellow named Walter Napageek. If I pronounced his name correctly. It's a rather well-known uh, Native family in uh, Anchorage. Now, Walter uh, worked as a prostitute um, in Alaska, which is a good way to catch a cold at night, uh, walking the streets. The thing about uh, when they had the pipeline up there, so you had tons and tons of hard-working guys working on the Alaska pipeline. And so you also had a ton of... Uh, of hard-working uh, ladies working the street. About three thick, you know, uh, clogging the street 
clogging the streets, there were so many of them. And being as it was cold in wintertime, like, you know, it gets way below zero there in Anchorage, they're all wearing these giant parkas and boots and earmuffs and gloves. <laughs> Couldn't tell what any of them looked like. <laughs> Yeah, see thousands of thousands of hundreds of thousands whatever women clogging the streets in their muckalucks and their you know big heavy coats. Wow, this is why they rub noses. That's why they rub noses. It's it's frozen. Need to keep it warm, and it's the only part that's visible. So how do you pick that one out? Ooh, I like the muckalucks on that one. The Vice Squad. There's a whole bunch in the book about the Vice Squad. Uh, by Grimes was uh, had been uh, in the Vice Squad before becoming a homicide detective, and so we have some interesting stories about uh, working in the Vice Squad uh, during the, that time when it was just useless. I mean, come on, you're going to go arrest somebody? Arresting street workers is stupid. Because how are they going to make the money to pay the fine for being a streetwalker? You got to walk the street to make the money to pay the fine for being a streetwalker. Uh-huh. Stupid. Just let them work, keep them safe, be nice to them, buy them a cup of coffee, a T-bird, a Camaro, a house. <laughs> yeah, unless you are by normal, which is I am not. Or self-aware or cognitive, which I am not. No, you're not. You, no. you wouldn't know a streetwalker if it bit you in the nose. <laughs> Especially if they were muckalucks. Well, I was, uh, I was at Waikiki. Yeah. In uh, one of the myriad of outrigger hotels that are all over the Hawaiian Islands. You know, three blocks from the Pink Hotel. And you walk out, and you're on the main drag. Yeah. And you're walking along. It's 10 o'clock at night, and I'm hungry. I bet you are. And he I was walk, a hungry man there's, walking there's by the no one, There's no one on the street, but no there's one. some ladies standing. And I walk over and I say, hello, I'm hungry. Is there some place I can get something to eat around here? And they look at me like I'm nuts. Yeah. So, sorry to bother you. And I cross the street. There's more ladies there. And I say, hi, I'm really hungry. And I haven't, is there any place around here that it's open that I can get something to eat? And then the three of them stare at me like I'm nuts. And I walk down the street and I do this to... Don't you notice there are these little clusters? (laughs) I ask two more sets of ladies on the four corners, and then I notice there's some uh, police officers. So I I trundle over to the police officers, and they're staring at me like I'm out of my mind. And I said, hi, I'm really hungry. Is there a place open where I can get something to eat? And they look at each other several times do a double take and then the lady officer says one block down one two blocks over and there was a jolly rogers that was still open <clears throat> and i get to there i get something to eat i'm sitting at the uh, bar and it, it took about 40 minutes before it hit me who i was talking to yes that's why they told you looking for soul food and something to eat <laughs> <laughs> uh, i go well you come to the right place <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I'm looking for something to eat. Yeah. You could have said something and not someone. What would have perked their interest. <laughs> yeah, I'm <laughs> sure it did. Until they found out it was food I was looking for. They uh, said, man, you're, you're barking up the wrong tree here. <laughs> <laughs> nice limbs, though. But, okay. you know, it's interesting because, you know, at 10 o'clock at night, everyone goes home, go to the hotels or home, and, and they're the girls hanging out. And the cops are like, you know, half a block away watching all of this. Of course, they have to, you know, they have undercover 
<laughs> they wind up undercover well, no, usually later. Yeah, yeah. Well, but the bike's job was to go to the uh, body rub parlors and arrest the women who also offered him sex for another, you know, fifty, sixty, twenty, thirty, nineteen cents, whatever it was. <laughs> and then uh, his wife was unamused by this, coming home covered in, in oil and baby powder. <laughs> You look like a chicken being prepared for some sort of fricassee. <laughs> anyway, getting back to the story. Uh, uh, Walter was a streetwalker. He's a Walter dressed as if he were female. And apparently was able to pass for female. And fooled Kirby, who uh, allowed uh, Walter to perform oral sex on him. Uh, and then, maybe during all the excitement, of maybe uh, Walter's wig came off. And uh, it was a wilting experience for Kirby, who uh, became very upset and murdered Walter, put his body in a wheelbarrow, and rolled him down the street uh, in the snow, which left a single track, and he dumped the body, took the wheelbarrow back. It took the cops a long time to figure out why there was a single narrow tire track to where the body was. But... Uh, what I thought was interesting, and a lot of it was a horrible murder, of course, in the investigation, the cops told me that Kirby didn't get the least bit upset if you referred to him as a baby killer and a heartless murderer and all that. It didn't phase him in the least. But if you mentioned Walter, he went oh, nuts. he just went nuts. Because he couldn't be gay. Oh, no, no. It was okay to murder little kids, slit their throats. Murder their mother, steal her tips out of the tip can. But have sex with Walter? Hell no. He got real upset by that. That people might find out. Well, I would, I would be upset too. Well, yeah. Walter wasn't a nice guy. No, Walter was a nice guy. He was. Walter was never heard anything bad about Walter. Only bad about Kirby. Kirby killed Walter, apparently. Uh, but they were charging him with... Uh, the murder of Nancy Newman and her two little kids. Now, how they arrested was rather interesting. Uh, they kind of let him hang around. Uh, they didn't want to move too fast. They wanted to make sure they had a solid case against him. And he brought in, of course, the profiler, who really nailed it uh, accurately. Because you're looking for someone between, say, uh, 18 to 24, uh, who knows these people, he works with this kind of a job. He has this kind of personality. He has some sort of physical thing that he's embarrassed about, like maybe bad teeth that other people may not notice, but it's a big deal to him. And he was he was right about everything. But what Kirby did is he decides he's going to leave the country. So he jumps in his flatbed truck, and he makes a run for the border. Mm. So uh, he's on his way to the uh because when you leave Alaska by car, you hit Canada first before you hit the rest of the United States. So you got to leave America, go to Canada, come back into America, except further south. Well, the cops get hold of uh, Border Patrol, a U.S. Border Patrol, or Border uh, Guards, whatever you call them, and say, listen, we have a homicide suspect in this, uh, uh, you know, flatbed truck coming, trying to get into America to get away from us. They said, well, we don't want him here, <laughs> really. In fact, he happened to be pulling up to the uh, guard station at that very moment that the guy got the call. If he would have stepped out first and talked to Kirby, Kirby might have made it into America 
but he answered the phone first. And they turned Kirby around and sent him back. Now, there's a few miles in between the Canadian border and the American border. This kind of a, you know, man without a country, no man's land. So he's driving down that. But as soon as he hits uh, Alaska, they're waiting for him. But they don't charge him with suspicion of homicide. Don't charge him with murder. He had a joint in the ashtray. And they charged him with possession of marijuana. Gave him a reason to hold him long enough to get the charges together for the homicide. Well, only allowed 72 hours, right? Yeah. Although, here, we're in the lovely Los Angeles area. Uh, I live up at Stevenson Ranch. And a friend of mine, young fellow, got got in trouble for uh, tagging, you know, for uh, using a spray can to tag a building a few years ago. And so he was on probation. And he was supposed to uh, check in every month, like between the 1st and the 10th or something, in a kiosk that they have in the mall or someplace. He got confused on the date, and he went in a day too early. He went in on the 31st of the month instead of the 1st. He'd also been at the beginning of the month. But he was just so being so conscientious, he, he actually signed in a day early. About 10, 11 days later, the cops, without any IDs or badges or anything, burst into his parents' home and drag him out of there in handcuffs, take him down and put him in the jail for a week with no charges. And then he goes up in front of the jail. Meanwhile, he had a job. He lost his job because he didn't show up for a week. Don't know where he was. Right. Oh, a job abandonment. Yeah. And... Uh, they bring him up in front of the judge. Says, What's this guy charged with? Well, he's not charged with anything. <coughs> he's not charged with anything. You know, Your Honor, I've been in jail for a week. Well, this is ridiculous. The judges get to go home. So he does. But by then, he's lost his job, all this stuff. I said, Man, I wish you would have told me about this a few years ago when it first happened. Uh, we got you a lawyer, and you'd be holding golden. Well, he wasn't, he wasn't going to get millions, but. He'd probably at least get uh, the money lost from losing his job. Yeah. I mean, you're not supposed to hold people. <clears throat> I mean, you know, um, what? You, you go in, you knock on the door, hello. You didn't uh, check in, and he goes, well, here's my paperwork. Well, mm. unfortunately, you have to check in first. Let's go take take care of this. No, they didn't do any of no, that. No, I mean, you know, it's not like he's high. Oh, they treated him like he was John Dillinger without the lady in the red dress. And that uh, that had a very profound impact on his life and his career and his attitudes. And his folks were unimpressed too. Probably they didn't get a lawyer. They probably wondered where the kids. <laughs> God, they dragged some of these people. Came and dragged them out, but no idea on said who they were. But that's who they were. Anyway, getting back to uh, to Anchorage, Alaska. Um, that they held him on the marijuana charge for the charge with a homicide. And then they brought in Judge Ray, the FBI profiler, to testify. That had to be approved. It was never before had a FBI profiler been allowed to testify in a homicide case. They didn't know profiling was something that was of uh, invalidity. But that was the first time. Also, the, the allotyping, they had to approve that. Uh, and the, the, his, his blood and their blood was all kind of you know mixed together, just fine. So they had all sorts of ways of doing it. And Debbie Heck, uh, 
I, of course, testified. And uh, it was such a big case in Alaska, they had TV cameras in the courtroom. Kirby decides he's so brilliant, like most psychopaths think they are, that he's going to be his own attorney. As they say, even an attorney who has himself as a client has got a stupid lawyer or vice versa. (laughs) Got an idiot for a client. No. Uh, In Kirby's summation, his big ending diatribe, dialogue, whatever, was all about how much he loved Debbie Heck. Oh, Debbie, we're destined for, you know, and she's sitting in the audience going, get me the out of here. I asked her, I said, What's, what was it like seeing that video of Kirby uh, professing his undying love for you? She said, haunted. It made me feel haunted. Oh, she's a nice kid. And it was very, very nice of her to cooperate and go with me. She went with me on television. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, interview. Discover, investigation discovery? No, this was uh, prior to my involvement with Investigation Discovery. This was on, um, oh, what's his name? Matt Matt knows him. I should know him too. Court uh, TV? He was on TV in Seattle. The guy also did um, a Market Allen radio show, uh, something like that. And he originally had been, get this, in my hometown of Walla Walla, Washington. And he was working at KUJ Radio. And he came to me and said, Burl, I need to get out of Walla Walla. Can you help me put together uh, an audition tape? And I said, I sure will. So I helped him put together this tape. And it got him this gig in Seattle at this uh, big station. He did the morning show there with a partner for years. And then he did this uh, TV show uh, that was on a talk show in the afternoon. Do you remember the other person's name who was uh, his I partner? I think it was Mark Allen or some Mark and Allen. But all of a sudden, it will come to me when I'm not on the radio. It's my mind. I can see it in my mind, but my mind's blank. <laughs> As a rule. Anyway, she actually came, agreed to come on TV with me, which I think may give her some kind of closure because she hadn't talked about it, uh, anything. She didn't want, you know, uh, she read the book. And that's the reason she agreed to testify. I mean, agreed to come on the TV with me. And she read the book. She had denied herself the truth of much of this. She had suppressed it and not dealt with it. Uh, it was too painful to deal with. But she read the book. Bob and, Hardwick? Huh? Bob Hardwick? No, Bob Hardwick did not do a TV show on Channel 5, 4, 7, whatever. Nice guy, though, Bob Hardwick. In any event... She read the book, Murder in the Family, and it all came back to her, and she couldn't deny it, suppress it, bury it anymore. She had to deal with it, and she did beautifully. And uh, she was fascinating to talk to. You could just see how all this this horrible stuff played out in her life and how she dealt with it. And uh, I was very proud of her. Being because it took an act of bravery to go on TV and talk about this, which she did. So we did that show on uh, on TV together, and I hope she's doing well wherever she is. I saw an article about Kirby, who's in prison, of course, for life, several times uh, for the murder of Nancy and her two kids. And uh, of course, the fact that he did it because he was so mad about Debbie Heck having sex with the first mate. Play, 
was another reason that Debbie was uncomfortable with all the, you know, it like it's my the, fault, you know. What was the radio station? Uh, what, that he was on? Yeah. Well, name a few. <laughs> no, well, you said you say gave it the callers. Oh, the KUJ in Walla Walla. K what? KUJ in Walla Walla, Washington. And that was prior to him going to Seattle. Yeah. Uh, he was there in 1980, in Walla Walla 1980, when I moved back there. And he asked me to put together an audition tape for him, which I did in my little home studio. And he got a great job, wonderful job, with uh, Fisher Broadcasting. And uh, he's done quite well. He's a nice guy, too. And, uh, not was, KJR. No, it wasn't KJR. It's, oh, Matt would know if, I, if they were in here. My mind is just, it was like the MOR station. Personality MOR, middle of the road, adult contemporary. I think the team was, what, Mark and Allen? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'll give that a shot. Yeah, look up Mark and Allen Radio TV, Radio Mark and Allen Show Radio Seattle. See what you get. Anyway, so Kirby is, is serving several life sentences for murder up there in Anchorage. Now, being as he murdered children, two adorable little girls, you would think they would keep him separate from the general population because usually those people get killed by the general population because they're so looked down upon. Nope, not in Anchorage. I guess maybe it's more common up there, more acceptable. Well, there's Matt. Uh, I bet Matt knows the answer to the question. Matt, uh, who was the disc jockey that did the morning show, Matt and Allen or something like that? Ken? Uh, in Seattle. Ken and Allen? Yeah. What was it? Ken. Ken and Allen, that what it was? Yeah, I believe. What were their last names, you know? No idea. No idea. Now we're back to uh, page one again. <laughs> anyway, one of them also did a TV show, and I was on it, and I'd helped him get his... He worked in Wall of Wall, and I helped him get his Seattle gig. So I don't know where he is now, but he's probably making a lot more money than we are. I'm getting close. You're yeah. getting close? Signing off... Yes. 32 years of the Kent and Allen show. Kent and Allen, Star yeah. Star 101.5. Star 101.5. Alan Budwill. Alan Budwill. No, it wasn't him. And San Juan's. San Juan? Capistrano? That's what it says. <laughs> for a fact checker, you're getting a little rusty there. You remember Rusty? He had a dog named Lassie. No, that was, rusty was in uh, Circus Boy, wasn't he? I think so. And Rusty was also Danny Thomas's son, Rusty Hamer. Not his real son, but his son on TV. He committed suicide. Not my fault. Okay. Anyway, Kirby is uh, serving on multiple life sentences. There was an uh, article. Phillips. Yeah. Yes, there you go. Ken Phillips. Thank you very Got much. It. Here's a picture. Yeah, that's him. Yeah, nice guy, too. Uh, Ken Phillips, he worked at KJ. I helped him get his job. That job. I wish I got 10% of what he made after I opened up. <laughs> That would have been nice. Anyway, there's this big article in the paper about uh, Kirby Anthony in prison and what a model prisoner he is and just such a great guy. And everyone thinks the world of him up there. Yeah. That's not good. No. Well, I mean, it's a good thing he's... I mean, anyone who'd kill Walter Napageek and two little girls and their mom and another 12-year-old girl in Idaho, uh, allegedly, is... Uh, I do not approve of their behavior. Mm. 
not one bit. How I happened to wind up doing the book, Murder in the Family, is uh, I got a phone call from my agent, my brand new agent hmm? at that time, because all I'd had is I'd won the Edgar Award for uh, The Saint of Complete History, and uh, I'd written, uh, I believe, Man Overboard, Counterfeit Resurrection of Phil Champagne. They get a phone call from my delightful new agent who says, Burl, Kensington Publishing uh, has the Pinnacle True Crime series, and they're looking for an author to write a book about a dreadful murder case uh, up in Alaska. And I asked the all-important question, is there there a a check check attached? (laughs) (laughs) And she said, there certainly is. I said, I'm the man for the job. And what, you know, Phil Champagne was was, uh, asked through you if they didn't mind making some changes for the theatrical release of his story. And his answer was... Oh, that wasn't Phil. Yeah, no, that was Phil, yes. Phil Champagne. Yeah, Phil Champagne said, I don't care if they make me a cartoon mouse as long as they sign that check. <laughs> said, Phil, you're a man after my own heart. <laughs> the guy who wanted to make the changes was a TV producer named Anthony Spinner, who somehow was involved with Return of the Saint. Why, I don't know. I went to Anthony Spinner's office to pitch him on a TV version of, of Man Overboard, which hadn't been published yet. And uh, he was out in his car smoking dope, and the windows were all rolled up, and he was wearing a sweater. And so he comes out of the car, he comes into the office, and he's circling Pluto. And he's <laughs> his sweater smelled like 15 people could smoke it. <laughs> oh. <laughs> there was more THC in his sweater than I think all in the... In and, and in the buds he was using. Yeah. Oh, boy. He had soaked up a lot of stuff. And he was like, well, how about if we make some changes? We make uh, his sister a private eye. And I mean, he's going, all these cliché, 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 cliché. And I said, Phil, what do you think? Make me a cartoon, mouse. <laughs> Write me the check. Write me the check. <laughs> uh, Phil was a great guy. Really was. He was a lot of fun. Did you uh, Did you travel up to Alaska for some of the research? Oh yes, I did. I did well, you were to... still in the Seattle area at the time, were you not? Uh, where was I when I wrote that book? Uh, were you in Vegas at the time? No, 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 no. I wrote uh, that when I think I was living in Walla Walla. Yeah, so time. you were It wasn't that far away. What Alaska? Yeah. Well, no, I mean, still you got to fly over Canada and then go to Alaska. Right, but it, it's not like you were in New York or... Well, uh, maybe it was as far away as New York. Does anybody know? Uh, Anchorage is a very small town. It's the largest town in Alaska, but I think it's smaller than Spokane. So what happens if you get on the freeway at Anchorage and you start daydreaming while you're driving, like some people tend to do? Uh-huh. All of a sudden, you're 15 miles outside of town. <laughs> Where they call and you're, you know, you're, you're wondering why there's a circle of polar bears looking <laughs> at you as if you were a popsicle. Right. I mean, there's like giant moose wandering the downtown streets of Anchorage. <laughs> Interesting things to keep people amused there because there's not a lot of stuff to do except if you're into winter sports or, you know, right. freezing. <laughs> they have is indoor golf. Which is really huge there. Yeah. And it's like a, a giant video game of playing golf. Oh, so it's not just a big giant building that you can actually hit a golf ball 2,200 no, it's, yards it's, that it's way. virtual golf. Ah. But it's got big screens of, you know, scenery and stuff on it. Mm-hmm. And, and that's a big deal up there. Of course, movies 
Because <laughs> what else are you going to do? Stop and go to movies. Right. Or both at the same time. Well, that's a, that's a special kind of theater. Yeah. Yeah. They have, I've been to those. Stop and watch? <laughs> yeah, stop and watch. <laughs> they sit and spin. <laughs> I said, sometimes I find this amusing. We do get mail. We get letters. We get reviews. People say, they have a lot of bad jokes on that show. <laughs> yes, but we amuse ourselves, yeah. and that's all that matters. The other one said, they said, where the hell do they do this show on a loading dock? That's one of my favorite reviews. <laughs> <laughs> and the answer would be, yeah, well, pretty close. We do it in, in the uh, Lighting Up Lounge, Matt Allen's Lighting Up Lounge, a real authentic 1876 Virginia City-style barn built in Matt Allen's backyard, more or less. Yeah. And it's really realistic. Uh, there are a few bodies of old cowboys buried somewhere in here. Well, I think the hitching post out yeah. front is a bit much. But. Yeah, yeah. And the, uh, but it's it's true. It uh, really is atmospheric. This is like a real 1876 style bar. And there's real alcohol in here, which if we were a broadcast station and if people got drunk, uh, it would be against the law. <laughs> well, and I seem to remember uh, a uh, local... Uh, morning to uh, would do it every year. Yes, for as a public service to show you why you shouldn't be on the radio. You know, and drink, yes. The drunk show. We also did one with uh, Dick Curtis, may rest in peace, uh, in Seattle where he went a week without sleep. It's a sleep deprivation study. Oh my, that's dangerous. Yeah, very dangerous. And he went bonkers. Which yeah. is probably why he stayed in broadcast. He was also Bob Dylan's tour manager. Oh, well, and uh, I could take Bob Dylan for about twenty-five seconds. I could take Bob Dylan for a lot longer than that. I saw him recently. He just played uh, Los Angeles, played at the Pantages Theater for three nights. The sound system was fabulous. It's a small theater, mm -hmm. and Dylan was very funny. And it's a shame he can't sing. Oh, he can sing. He can sing better than you can. But that's one of the great joys is his intonation. Ah. And uh, he uses it to great effect for drama and for humor. And he was very humorous that night. Because okay. he put the emphasis on certain words and then laugh and people cheer. Uh -huh. <laughs> do, we have a, uh, do we have a guest next week, maybe? Uh, I don't know if we're going to have a show next week. Gonna be oh, out you're going to be out of town. And I get, I get to sleep in. You could probably sleep in. And uh, uh, so either they'll run a rerun, or uh, I'll be in Portland, Oregon, and if I can find a, a criminal or a case, uh, I'll let you know. And so one of the weeks we'll do a show uh, from Oregon. Uh, okay. Well, then you have a great trip. And in the meantime, yeah. what's next? Magic Man Allen, Demons of Decadence, live in the Light of the Lounge on Allo Radio Live. dot com. Dot com.